You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast in association with Last Who. Last Who gives fans the opportunity to book live video chats with an incredible roster of sports stars. Last Who is a new must-have app for any sports fan. Whether you want to book your hero for a one-to-one conversation, give a truly unique gift to a friend or family member, organise a keynote speaker for your event, or even some inspirational words ahead of your local club's big game, Last Who have got you covered. By downloading the Last Who app, users can search for and book hero speakers from around the world within minutes, including a wide range of current and ex-cricketers. The app allows you to set an agenda, ensuring everyone is prepared and at ease and that every minute of every call is spent on the topics you are most interested in. And with no travel time or additional costs, organising a Last Who experience couldn't be simpler. We've got an interview with one Lasso hero, Charlotte Edwards, later in the show. Famous last words, but I think this show should be shorter than usual. I'm Yaz Rana, and today I'm joined by the magazine editor of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon, and the editor-in-chief of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Phil Walker. If you're watching this on YouTube, you'll notice that Phil and Joe are dressed slightly smarter than usual. Um, They're scooting off to the Cricket Writers Club lunch um, pretty much as soon as we finish recording this, and the mag goes to print. Very soon? Tomorrow. Tomorrow, yeah. excellent. So all, they're, they're all quite busy. <laughs> On last week's show, we glossed over the latest Ashes update, so we'll devote some time to that now. So the last week, Joe Root refused to confirm his participation as players waited for further details on the protocols that will be imposed on them and their families in Australia. Just yesterday, the ECB released a statement saying that their board will meet later this week, decide whether the conditions in place are sufficient for the tour to go ahead and enable the selection of a squad befitting a series of this significance. Tim Payne, the captain of the Australian team that have played four tests all at home since the start of the pandemic compared to England's 18, said the Ashes are going ahead. The first test is on December the 8th, whether Joe is here or not. It'll be <laughs> worth. <laughs> 
it'll be worked out above us and, and then they'll have a choice whether to get on that plane or not. Um, and this morning, there are a couple of further developments. The Ages' Dan Brettig reported that a resort in Victoria has been offered to the England players' families uh, where they will essentially be able to quarantine in that compound rather than the hard hotel room quarantine period previously feared. Um, England players have had two calls over the last two days with Cricket Australia CEO Nick Hockley talking through arrangements. Phil, increasingly get the, getting the feeling that it is going to go ahead as entertaining some of the back and forth um, verbal jousting between England and Australia has been. It seems that arrangements are being made. Yeah, and, and the bingo moment is the resort. <laughs> isn't it? Um, you know, our brave boys and girls will be going out there and selling themselves for two weeks um, in a in a COVID-safe environment. Uh, that's what they've been lobbying for. Um, understandably so. They've been through, been put through the ringer over the last 18 months. Uh, I think it will go ahead. I think it will go ahead broadly with a, with a full-strength team. I think Joe Root will lead it. Um, Tim Payne is not overburdened by empathy. I think it's fair to say. Um, Joe Harmon, who's just seated to my right here, he's not happy with Tim Payne at all. You should have heard what he was saying off air. But anyway, maybe we'll come to that. And I, I think there is a slight sort of subtext to all of this from an English perspective. And as I say, I think it will go ahead. I think they may need to change the order of test matches, possibly due to the hard borders from state to state. Perth test matches may be under threat. So that's a possibility. But I think we'll see five test matches. Uh, with a relatively full-strength team, there's a big question mark, of course, against Ben Stokes. Um, and, you know, we wish him well. Um, uh, but the subtext to me is the increasingly frayed relations between the ECB, the paymasters, and the Team England player setup, the subjects. And th the more I, th I think about the last few months, the more evidence piles up that things are not altogether tickety-boo between uh, bosses and players. Um, we had well, we had the bonus scandal to begin with, the 2.1 million fat cat um, bonus payment going to the top few executives at the ECB, which sort of blew out the water, any notions of togetherness. Everyone took a pay cut, including the England players themselves. They gave 500 grand between them to the PCA, if you remember, back in 2020, to ease the pressure on the game itself due to COVID. Um, that bonus scandal has... I would say frayed relations quite quite significantly, and there were reports afterwards that England players were disappointed um, in the behaviour of their bosses. I would imagine that that has sent shockwaves through the whole organisation. An ECB employee who's who's relatively close to the players said to me, "It's easy for for people to take pay cuts if they know that a bonus is around the corner, right?" So that so that that is that's a, a lightning rod moment, I would say, between between the two. Then you've got the Pakistan debacle, of course, with the the ECB bosses saying, we consulted with the players, we made the decision on the players' behalf, and then the players, via their union, in effect, via their partnership organisation, saying, well, we weren't consulted. Heather Knight, as well, England women's captain, saying the same thing. Decision was taken above our heads. That's not going to go down that well either. Um, going further back, Ed Smith was sacked because the players didn't like him. There was suggestions, again, of conflict there as well. Um, Stokes was summoned 24 hours Less than 24 hours to go and captain an ODI side, and we haven't seen him since because we, he was palpably knackered. Um, this latest episode, there's an element of brinkmanship f from the English setup to the Australian setup, but there's also an element of brinkmanship, I think, between the England players and their own bosses. 
they have been flogged from pillar to post. And I think the subtext, the message here is stop flogging us to death. It is interesting, though, that there hasn't been a completely unified voice from the England players. So this week, Joe Root says they're not committing, but some England players have. Stuart Bourne and James Anderson have used their columns in national papers to say they're definitely going. Ollie Pope as well. Dan Lawrence Dan has Lawrence. said that he's definitely going. So it's not as if it's a completely unified stance from players that we're not, we don't want to commit yet. Some players have very confidently said publicly, we're going. Yeah, and you're, get, you're kind of left with the point, well, who are, who are we waiting on? And it seems to be... Joe Root, really, and I'm not sure that is because Root is weighing up, but probably because he's such an important uh, kind of prize in this whole thing. When England say they need to have a squad going out there with that's befitting of the, the contest, well, that means that Joe Root needs to be there, basically. Mm. Uh, most of the other England players who haven't yet said they're going are, in that sense, dispensable. I mean, if, if, if other England batsmen who haven't got fantastic records pull out, then they just find another England batter who hasn't <laughs> got a fantastic record. It all hinges on Root, which I think is why he can't come out and say, look, I'm, I'm playing. He also has talked, I think it might have been the same interview where he said, everyone wants to go out to Ashes. It's, we're all desperate to play, which was a bit of a giveaway that, you know, that, that's what he, he wants to do. And yeah, I think, as Phil said, brinkmanship is the, is the word. I think we are going to get there. I think it's, it's been, I mean, the, the kind of pre-Ashes trash talk is a bit tiresome generally. But when you start out this early and it's around travel plans, you know, you're in for a long slog before you get to the Gabba. Uh, and obviously then we get to Tim Payne who is just I've never met him he's probably a very nice man and there are moments of the Amazon series where you kind of see the real Tim Payne or supposedly and and he seems like a nice bloke but the Tim Payne that he feels he has to be as Australian captain I find so tiresome and uh, it feels like he's always kind of playing to the crowds and being entirely tone deaf in how he does it just completely unnecessary at this point that things are relatively delicate and it smacks to me of, of a guy who knows he would never have got this job in normal circumstances and is debatable whether he should have a place in the side whatsoever. So he's constantly trying to offer more. Uh, and also he doesn't have much to do. I mean, he hasn't his, his team that he captains hasn't played a game since January. He's got this radio show that he co-hosts. So, you know, he's got a platform to, to say what he thinks. Uh, and I guess if you've got nothing else going on, why not? But mm. it, it's, it wasn't really the intervention that was needed at that point. I don't think when there's some fairly delicate conversations going on. Yeah, NASA saying calling him out for a lack of empathy as well. Um, Phil, do you, do you think there's an element of negotiation tactics in what's being said publicly in that the players obviously want their families to go? And even though they might deep down know that they're going to go anyway, they want their families to have as smooth uh, a journey into the country and stay, which is completely understandable. If the players can get their families uh, a nice resort instead of a hard hotel lockdown, that's that's a good thing, right? It is a good thing. Um, the, the the moral, in inverted commas, the, the, the moral judgment will come at the end of all of this, this rather tiresome saga that we speak about most weeks. Um, if If England turn up with half of their players not there, because they weren't able to get what they wanted in, in regards of comfort and ease and so on, then there'll be a few people who will say, hold on, you're not playing for your paymasters. You're not playing for a five-star hotel. You're playing for the shirt. There will be people saying that, and that is a perfectly legitimate point of view, I think. Um, my, gut, my gut instinct, though, is that there won't be any of these issues. There may be one or two, and it's a huge grey area regarding individuals' mental health, and England are right to be treading as carefully as necessary on that. Um, but I don't, I don't see there, there being any real issue with them saying these are extraordinary times and we've lived 
right on the edge as players and individuals for 18 months now. They've played so much more cricket than any other team bar India. Uh, they have not seen their families anywhere near as much as they would have done in peacetime, if you like. So they are well within their rights to say, if you want us to, to flog our guts out again on a three-month tour, then give us something back or at least fight tooth and nail with the Australian government, in effect, uh, which has its own interpretation of these times, as we know. They are well within their rights to say, you've got to fight for us. You have to fight for us. And I totally understand that. And I think from a human perspective, that's absolutely fair and reasonable. In the last uh, 24 hours, uh, there was an ESPN Quick Info report that read that Nathan Lyon, as well as other potential Test Squad members from New South Wales and Victoria, are set to face a challenge as to how and when they enter Queensland with a prospect of a 14-day hotel quarantine likely ahead of the first test. Um, Cricket Australia faces a logistical nightmare with its Test Squad members based in New South Wales and Victoria. Joe, is part of the trepidation possibly from players is the uncertainty of what could happen when they get there. We, we talked briefly last week of the Sheffield Shield game that got cancelled at short notice. And these players have, have been through a lot over the last 18 months. I know I said it cheekily in the intro, very different to Australia. I mean, it's hard to know. We haven't spoken to any of the players specifically about this issue, but that would be an entirely, entirely reasonable concern. It's a long, long way from home as well, which kind of adds to the, adds to the whole thing. Yeah, and I think also... It's not just about getting them out there and then getting them on the pitch. They've also got to be in a position where they feel they can play well. But uh, also in a position where they feel safe as well. So we saw last year with, say, Moeen and Wokes in Sri Lanka. You know, they were both out of the game for, what, 10, 10 days or something. That balls up much of their winter. So another fear has to be, I mean, if they close down a state due to four cases, then there's got to be some players looking at that and thinking, I don't, you know, not only do I, am I dreading a 14 day hard quarantine, but I'm prepared to take it on the chin. But then what happens if, if you fall down halfway through the Brisbane test match and then you're having to face another 14 days of hard quarantine? That would be a very real fear. It's not just getting them there and getting them in their whites. It's keeping them healthy and away from the, from this, this virus. Yeah, and it's it's interesting going back to Moen and Wokes in in Sri Lanka because that is also that must be an incredibly literally isolating thing to be just you're you're essentially removed from the group and you have to just do your thing. And Moen talked about how much he he struggled in India, just obviously wasn't enjoying himself. I mean that that was a terrible way to start a tour, and that that is a tough thing. We've got to remember outside of all of this, the pressure of an Ashes series is huge. It makes and breaks careers. Captains go, coaches go. So when you've got all that hanging over you and then you've got this, it's absolutely understandable that there are there are real concerns about it. All that being said, I think I'm, I've not for one second thought this series won't happen. I think there's just too much riding on it financially, um, reputationally. I just think it will happen. And it's, whether, it's just whether it happens in a kind of miserable, angry way or whether they can get to a point where both sides are kind of comfortable. And hopefully, hopefully, that statement by the ECB was kind of, I mean, classically ecb in its delivery um they are masters aren't they yeah. at saying nothing saying and then just throwing all. it in at that last line all seems quite innocent and then that final line about needing a side that's befitting of the series and, and as malcolm con aussie tub thumper former uh, head of communications for cricket australia wrote it well it doesn't matter who they send they'll get flogged anyway yeah well there is a lot of that oh as well, my there, word but... you think considering you're living in australia at this particular moment there would be a little bit more sympathy for the the, the nuances and not, challenges. Not from Malcolm Conn for English cricketers. Well, I think that no, is. No, no, sure. <laughs> you make it? exceptions for that. Phil, when you went on the grey cricket, Ian Higgins was saying, it doesn't matter who you guys 
The yeah. send over is going to be 5-0. We'll take yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Send with a bit more, bit more heart and soul. 5-0. 5-0. 5-0. The IPL. At the time of recording, we are approaching the final stages of the group phase of the competition. Delhi Capitals, Chennai Super Kings and Royal Challengers Bangalore are all through to the playoffs. Sunrisers Hyderabad are definitely out with the other four teams fighting over the final playoff spot. KKR, who occupy fourth place at the moment, are probably best place to qualify given their superior net run rate, but it really is too close to call. Um, from an English perspective, Sussex's George Garton is taking the new ball for Virat Kohli's RCB, uh, who are currently third. He's done okay so far. He dismissed... Um, Evan Lewis, when he was well set on debut, he took one for 27 in a close win from his four overs over Punjab Kings. Um, Joe, you spoke to him earlier this year. He's had a very good white ball summer. Are you surprised that he finds himself actually playing in the IPL? Um, it's rare that England players, English players, play in the IPL before they play for England. And it's also rare that English players are playing the IPL when they're not in the current England T20 squad. Um, yeah, are you surprised by how, how he's um, done? Well... Yes and no. I'm surprised he's playing for Cody's team, the IPL, and it's happened so quickly. But we did say at the start of the summer that with the blast and most importantly the hundred on top of that, there was a real opportunity for some of those kind of fringe players to really accelerate their careers quickly. Now, I think we actually picked out Garton as, as one of those names, and um, and he's really shown that. I mean, he's he's bowled against high quality opposition uh, enough for RCB and Cody to say, well, yeah, we, we we think he can do that. And sure, he hasn't played for England yet, but he he will very soon uh he offers so much i think it's impressive what he's turned himself into as well because when he came through he was kind of famous for being fast without being especially good to be honest when he first came through because he was still kind of figuring it all out and now he seems to be certainly in kind of t20 blast level a a genuine all-rounder unbelievably good fielder um you can see he's going to be very very attractive to franchises around the world and to england and you know he hasn't made this world cup squad but there is that natural turnover of of players after a world cup England's side is old. A lot of the sides at T20 World Cup are actually quite old, but England's, I think it's Livingston and Curran are only two of the very few under, under 30. I think they're the only two under 30. Uh, yeah. So you could absolutely see a couple of those guys making way after this World Cup and Garton being quite a, a strong part of that side mm. for quite a long time to come. It's a incredible opportunity to show what he can do though. He's likely going to be playing in the IPL playoffs, which is an amazing opportunity. He's also had a horrendous run of injuries. So it's any fast bowler who has that experience early on and you just wonder if it's all going to fall into place. It's great to see him kind of come through. My IPL experience was summed up last night, actually. I got in and put the telly on, went through the sports channels and saw Delhi playing CSK. I thought, oh, this is all right. It's a good game. And watched sort of half hour, 45 minutes of it. Um, and they thought, oh, I'll check out the table, see see who's where, because it was you know, a good game of cricket with some good players. They're both already qualified, just go, just going through the motions, you know, getting getting those TV hits. Everyone just shakes hand at the end of it. Um, Hetmeyer won the game, jumped on Bravo's back. Bravo plays for the other team. That was really weird. It was weird, but it was entirely consistent with the the, the jamboree element of it, you know. Like you, and, you and Lanky the Giraffe. All good <laughs> content, eh? Bring it on. Um, Nick from Lancashire asks, CSK sits second in the table despite carrying MS Doney, who's averaging 14 this season with a strike rate of 97.67. In 2020, Doney averaged 25 with a strike rate of 116, a modest return for a finisher. Is Doney undroppable for Chennai? Should, they be confined, should he be confined to a mentoring role these days or do the pod back him to come good? in the knockout stages. Um, well, I mean, obviously he's, he's, he's well past his best. I'd argue he's been well past his best for, for three years now. Um, yesterday here, 18 off 27 with Jadeja behind him in the order. 
Um, that's a strike rate of 66, which, you know, wouldn't be out of place in a 1997 ODI. Um, mm. It's not yeah. a one-off either, is it's it? It's not a one-off. I, I, I find the weirdest thing how there is almost no genuine criticism of him on commentary, which is just weird. Weird and weird. also... It's entirely it's consistent. It's, it's, it's with consistent, the last decade. but it is really strange. Um, it's, it's, it's also that when he like really stinks the place out, it becomes a bit absurd, doesn't it? Because, you know, people fail all the time in T20, but to fail so obviously and in a way that is so clearly detrimental to your team has to be called out, but it, but we know it's not going to be. Yeah, but undroppable it, is 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 the word because obviously he doesn't warrant his place as a batter. Uh, he's still a surprisingly good keeper. He's still, I mean, he's mm. never obviously looks particularly uh, wonderful in what he's doing, but he's still very, still, I mean, still really uh, good up to the stumps. Uh, and obviously he brings a lot as captain, but you know how much of that could he do from a mentor role? But it's not, it's more than just cricket, the IPL, and it. it, it it always has been and always will be and, and they need him in that team for as long as he can still get out there, I think. so. From a purely cricketing point of view though, do, do you think there is merit when, if you have a captain who is that experienced and then completely out of nick? I mean, we talked about Morgan last week. He relegated himself in the order to number six this week. Possibly a sign of things to come in the T20 World Cup, just pushing himself lower and lower, lower in the order. Did you think if you've got a captain as experienced as a Morgan or a Donny, it's worth having them on the field? I think you, you can do that, but then stop bringing them out at a time when you need to put your foot down and score quick runs. Like, but you could be a sort of specialist keeper captain and bat at nine effectively, but he's still always, because mm. there's that kind of, the, the, the whole thing around Donny, there's still that sense he needs to come out when the game is on, even though he's not really the best player to do that right now. If you if you take the, the notion, and it's a fair one, that 2020 cricket is all the skills of cricket condensed, then the captain's role becomes probably more critical in a, hour and 15 minutes on the park than it does say over a you know a red ball game for sure and by extension from a 50 over game as well um there are certain conventions in 2020 over cricket but they're constantly changing and constantly evolving over by over and this notion of matchups and these kind of rather sort of naff terms which don't as ben jones wrote in the magazine they don't take a genius to figure out what they are but they are still active live moments within the context of that innings that a captain has to react to and intuition is obviously a key part of it as well so yeah probably more than in any other form of the game you can justify having if you like a kind of player manager like a Kenny Dalgleish sort of figure um and Morgan is kind of inching towards that and Do- and Donny yeah. is striding towards that but I, I, I agree with that I think the captain is more important in teaching cricket than any other format and it is akin to football management in terms of how, you know, if you watch Guardiola or Tuchel on the touchline of a game, they're controlling everything. It's the same with a captain in T20 cricket. Every ball, they're changing the field. Every, you know, they're thinking about who's going to bowl each over, which batsman they want to keep on strike, etc. That That is a very difficult thing to, to learn. But and, and crucially, CSK are having a good season. If they'd had another season like they had last season, perhaps Dhoni might have needed to think himself, right, this is this is the time to go but as long as your team is winning you can justify that kind of specialist captaincy tag and I don't think anyone's going to be tapping on the shoulder at any time soon so come on <laughs> you've played enough here MS let mm. someone else have a go that's a fair point um, as mentioned at the top of the show I spoke to Lass Who hero Charlotte Edwards about the drawn test between Australia and India this week as well as her reflections on the English summer uh, if you download the Lass Who app that's spelt L-A-S-S-W-H-O you can book your hero for a one-to-one conversation 
and give a truly unique gift to a friend or family member, organize a keynote speaker for your event or even some inspirational words ahead of your local club's big game. Um, It is an amazing opportunity. You can literally book to have a conversation with one of England's greatest ever cricketers. Uh, Other cricketers you can book are Simon Jones, Danny Morrison, Ryan Harris, Darren Sammy and Ben Cutting. Anyway, this is my Morrison for me. <laughs> get him down and give you a park and Romford on a Saturday morning. <laughs> have an inspiring team talk from Danny Morrison. Yeah. For you, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this is my conversation with Edwards. We're thrilled to be joined by Charlotte Edwards, who's with us in Australia. Great to have you on the show, Charlotte. Um, let's start with the India-Australia tour. Um, how impressed were you with India? They pushed Australia hard and the ODIs were very good in the test match have you been almost surprised by how well India have done on this tour do you know what I'm not really I think um you know I think we saw glimpses in the English summer of how good and how exciting they are as a team and um and I think um yeah they've they've done really really well especially in these conditions um which bodes well for them for for the World Cup but they're they're traveling along really nicely um and yeah they've um you know and obviously just watched the test match as well and if only there'd be five days in a test match, I think we might have had a result there. But um, no, they've played played really, really well. Um, Australia aren't at full strength, um, but um, yeah, they weren't as they weren't as prolific as I thought they probably would be in, in the test match. On the ODI series first, looking ahead to the World Cup um, later this winter, um, has has your kind of uh, perspective on who you think? Uh, are likely to challenge Australia, I guess. Has that changed that much? Do you think India are closer to where you thought they may have been a year or so ago? Yeah, India are definitely getting closer, I think. Um, you know, when their top batters are in form, I think they're going to be hard to stop. I think probably the only area of of sort of concern for them is they're probably their, their seeing bowling. But then having seen the test match and seeing some of their bowlers really step up, Singh and Fastraker and... Um, I think that's probably given them real heart probably going into the to the T20s and and for what's coming up so I think they've probably been some a really good find for them um but in terms of you know other teams I think I think it's wide open if I'm honest it's going to be really exciting how certainly the WBBL goes and what players step up there and um yeah I'm I'm really looking forward to to the next few months and I obviously can't wait for the ashes because I think that's going to be um, I think we've got a bit of a taste for it now having been here watched some of the Aussie stuff and um, yeah I'm really looking forward to, to that series as well um, On the test match do you think India benefited from having played a test match more recently than Australia? Absolutely I think they looked like they were more in tune with test cricket than the Australians I think the Australians probably didn't pick the right side if I'm being brutally honest I think they probably went I, I mean I would have picked Georgia Redmayne um, having lost Rachel Haynes it looked like they had too many bowling options they didn't really know um, which ones to use at the right time um, and I think that's maybe a little bit of form as well they weren't quite certain of Kerry's uh, but she's good looks back back to her best um, so yeah um, I think um, yeah I think the Indians definitely looked like they'd played a lot more cricket than Australia of late Obviously, the weather um, ruined things a little bit. But do do you think that India, being ahead of the game, could have pushed for victory a little bit more on that final day, or do you think that they kind of went about it about right? No, I think they could have really, um, you know, maybe did it have a declaration probably error. I think I'd have set them two fifty or fifty overs uh, and said to you, go for it under light, pink ball moving around. I think that would have been incredibly difficult. I think once they 
once they left it as long as they were they did it was going to be always hard so i think india needed to be braver in my opinion um but that's easy sat on the sofa here in adelaide um but um i think if they really wanted to win that test match i think that's probably would have been the best way to to go about it Mm. um and we obviously don't see as many women's tests as, as we'd like and when we have in recent times we haven't got a result i think canterbury 2015 was the last time there was a result and sometimes the weather hasn't helped. But do you think there's a broader reason for the for the lack of results in women's tests? And do you think that women's tests should just be five-day games from, from here on in? I think there should be five-day games. I think as soon as you get weather in a four-day game, certainly the women's game as well, like it, it just seems incredibly hard to get a result. Um, and because of the, the women's lack of experience playing that, um, cricket as well that having ex- you know, a lot of men play a lot of more domestic cricket to have have those experiences set in 250 or 50 overs to know that's not gonna, they're not going to do it so I think that's probably plays a big part but I think if we can play five days I think you'll almost certainly get a result more times than not um, and it, you know if there would have been a fifth day for this test match it would have been gripping and um, you know what the what the game needs right now as well I think so um, let's hope you know the the powers that be look at that and hopefully um, the next test matches will be will be five days. And looking back at the English summer we've just had, from a coach's perspective, um, what was your, your overall thoughts on the summer? How, how did you think it, it went compared to your expectations maybe going, going into it? Oh, it, it? Look, it's probably been one of the most memorable summers of, of, of cricket I've been involved in for a number of years. Um, you know, it was so, there was so much cricket, which I think was, I mean, that was the overriding feeling that, you know, the girls are playing more cricket now, more meaningful cricket. Um, the regional to play, you know, the, the two regional um, competitions, the 100 was just like nothing I've ever experienced. And, you know, I think anyone who was involved in it would say exactly the same. I don't think anyone could have imagined how um, how good it was going to be and the impact it's had quite quite initially as well. I didn't expect it to have that impact so instantly. So, um yeah, it's it's just been so good, and you can really see now a sense of, of a pool of players now competing for England spots. Which, you know, we're, we're coming out of this summer talking about names that we would never would never have spoken about in May, and I think that's always a great sign of how good a season's been. That um, hopefully England now are going to be stronger as a result of of, of what's happening. Um, yeah, so it's it's been incredible. We had a question a couple of weeks ago from a listener um, asking who are the who are the players to keep an eye on who are currently uncapped do you have a couple of names of people who've not yet been involved in the England squad do you think people should keep an eye on yeah I mean there's there's obviously a few players um Alice Capsey I think on everyone's um list at the moment I think how um how good she was I think we've got to be careful with how quickly we push her into the England environment I think she's had an incredible um start to sort of her domestic cricket career and I think we've got to be careful how quickly um we push her, but what a talent. It's so refreshing to see someone of her ability. And yeah, it's, it's really um, refreshing. I think Lauren Bell, who, who obviously plays with me down at the Vipers, I think her, her performances throughout the 100 were, um, yeah, really good. And, you know, she's really kicked on as, as a result of being on the, this programme. And I, um, yeah, so it, there's a couple of players, but, you know, it's so exciting. Grace Scrivens, I think she's a young player who I think, we're going to see a lot of in the future. So, um, 
yeah, they, these are names that, like I said, wouldn't have been spoken about, and 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 people know them now, which is even even better. On on last week's show, we had we had Tara Norris join us for a little bit, and she talked about how different this summer or the last year has been really for contracted non-internationals. From a coach's perspective, how big how big a difference did uh, the full time contracts make for those players not involved in the England squad? Oh, that's been probably one of you know, the highlights of, of the 12 months really is watching a player sort of come into the programme 12 months ago and see how um, how much they've improved in, in that 12 months. And, you know, I can only talk for the players that I've been involved with, you know, directly, but equally I've seen other players really grow over that time. But um, to watch them, you know, sort of grow as players and, and as people and, and then to see them in a hundred environment where we all were on the edge of our seats. We didn't know if they were going to deal with playing in the hundred and playing within you know, 20,000 people. But I think they surprised a lot of people. They surprised me at times. And, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly proud to, yeah, to work with these players as well on a, on a, on a daily basis. But um, yeah, just, um, you know, watching them and, you know, even someone like Tara, 12 months ago, she wouldn't have been able to do what she did in the final. And, and that's, so lovely to watch a player do something that they didn't probably think they could achieve and and that's through hard work and being on a professional program I believe that's enabled her to do that Mm. Um, and then finally just something on the crowds that we saw during the hundred um obviously there we've got regularly seeing crowds in excess of 10,000 um and then in relation to the England women's side um, Catherine Brunt said something quite interesting um, ahead of the fifth ODI, I think, where she talked about how the crowds were, were not, not quite the same as what we saw in the 100. Do, do you think there should be more of an effort made to get more England women's games played in the bigger cities? Um, the 100 obviously based in predominantly big cities. And I think the England women's side have, haven't played a game in a city with a population of more than a million since they won the World Cup. And does this summer kind of give the sense of actually there is there is such an audience out there we just need to take them to the bigger cities yeah I've been surprised by the sort of attendances really in the women's um internationals over over the summer really if I'm honest um and I think you know I didn't know that stat so yeah I mean it probably does point towards the fact that we've got to play in the bigger bigger um venues which you know 12 months ago if you'd have asked me that question I've said no it's absolutely right we're playing in the smaller venues we're going to pack them out and the hundreds changed everyone's opinions of the women's game because there is a demand for it. People wouldn't turn up at two o'clock to, to watch a game if they didn't enjoy it or didn't want to come back. So um, there's a, there's a need for it. Uh, uh, you know, it's been, I've been blown away by the support um, throughout the hundred and, you know, and that, that's why probably there is a case to get, get the games played at bigger venues and hopefully more people will come and watch as a result of that. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot for your time, Charlotte. Um, hope the rest of your quarantine goes okay and best of luck with the winter. Thanks very much. Joe, what's your moment of the week? Um, so I'm going to start my moment of the week with a uh, pop quiz, which you might both know the answer to. So just give a moment for listeners to, to, to come up their own answer. Can you name the only English spinner to take 50 championship wickets this summer? Okay, there's your pause. Phil? I can't remember my own name, mate. <laughs> Callum Parkinson. Callum Parkinson. Which, you know, oh, yeah. So I talk- should know that because you said earlier you were going to talk about <laughs> it. <laughs> um, so, I mean, regular listeners will know we talk about uh, Callum's twin brother, Matt, a lot on this show. Possibly too much, <laughs> some might say. Possibly. Um, and uh, Callum even said, so I, had, I interviewed him last week and he was just, he was a really, really lovely boat to speak to. He's had a really good season, which has kind of slipped under the radar. And I thought it's a good example of, 
that guy he's playing for Leicestershire a lot of what he does doesn't necessarily get the kind of attention it might deserve he even said um with a with a smile I think uh, in every article I'm the brother of and that's, <laughs> that's a tag he's trying to shake he said but he's very he's very self-deprecating um despite being yeah the leading English spinner this summer um I asked do you think there's a chance you'll get a, a Lions tour um and he said look the Lions are looking for a a balding left-arm spinner, then they can do worse than look at Leicester. But he said he doesn't expect to get picked. He said there are lots of good spinners out there doing doing good things. Um, but yeah, and he, t- he talked about being... We might have discussed this before through Matt, but he's part of a, a WhatsApp group of spinners. Has this come up before? Really? Don't think so. Not on the show. So it's Mason Crane, Don Bess, Matt and Callum Parkinson. <laughs> That's so cute. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's the kind of... It's, it's the spinners club. And he said they basically do it to kind of congratulate each other on their success but also pick pick to make each other up when they've either not got picks or they've not got a bowl because it's been the seamers all day and there's also a bit of chat about other spinners so they'll say oh matt critley critchley's had a good spell today which i just thought was was lovely how do you get added to the whatsapp group is there a certain number of wickets i don't think, I don't think critchley's <laughs> knocking on the door isn't he <laughs> who's, who's admin on that who, who would be at probably Probably Parkinson M, I would say. I think it's I think it's Parkinson C. So right. you, so he was he was captain of that Lancashire under seventeen side with Matt Hamid Bahannon, uh, Mahmoud, yeah. uh, Harry Dearden. He mentioned as well. Uh, so Callum was the was the. I mean, he wouldn't. I think he's probably. It's fair to say he's not as talented a bowler as Matt, but he's got leadership skills and he's captain Leicestershire at the back end of this season. He fancies doing it on a kind of longer term basis. Um, so I reckon he would be the one running the show in the WhatsApp group. Um, I think those leadership qualities shine through. He, he's quite an interesting bowler in that he is a finger spinner who's doing well across the formats. So I guess he made a name for himself more in the white ball stuff. And then this season had a really, really good championship season. So he said Colin Ackerman becoming red ball skipper has made all the difference. He says he bowls him loads more than he would do otherwise. And he bowls him at times where his job is just to take wickets. He's uses an aggressive option rather than being a kind of holding holding bowler when conditions aren't in the seamer's favour. So he said that's kind of completely changed his uh, his thought process around it. Um, yeah, I also asked him about, I mean, quite, just quite frankly, can you fulfil the things that you want to in your career whilst you play at Leicestershire? And he said, look, you know, he, he wasn't going to promise to spend the rest of his life there, but he said at the moment he thinks he can. He's, he admitted he was concerned that he might not get 100 gig because he played for Leicestershire, so that was a, that was a concern. But Northern Star Superchargers picked him up. I think he played a couple of games, maybe one or two. So he feels like he's still in the mix for those things. And the reason he thought he wouldn't get picked for the Lions was just because he said there's loads of good spins out there. He didn't say it's because it's it's that he plays for Leicestershire, which you know was, was heartening to to hear. And he signed a three year deal at the start of this year. You know he's, he wants to be the club captain in future. Um, so yeah, there's, there's there's stuff going on outside of the usual base that we probably talk about disproportionately uh, certainly covered in the media disproportionately uh, and he's just one example of someone who's had a really really fine season and, and not necessarily kind of got the plaudits he might deserve yeah. I, that, my, my moment of the week I'm just going to oh, no, move no, on no, from there no no no, no. Oh, I, I want right. to add something else actually so last week I recommended the video of Paul Allett celebrating in Lancashire um, this week I'm going to recommend the Leicestershire annou- Twitter announcement for Callum Parkinson signing that contract extension he basically wore a GoPro into his Meeting with the Leicester oh, CEO, <laughs> and uh, was kind of, and, and and basically signed it on camera. Right, so they are so, my yeah. favourite club. <laughs> They're so good, and obviously when we do the county files, we're in touch with the counties all the time. 
asking for interviews, asking for kind of tips on stories. And Leicestershire are fantastic, provide so much stuff each month, which we're generally grateful for. That's marvellous. Mm, I'm going to have to watch that. You can have I mean, your... I won't, but you know, I'm glad <laughs> it happened. You can have your moment of the week now, Phil. Yeah, sorry. It, it, it's just, it's, it's related thematically to what Joe's saying, really. A story from, I guess, the the slight backwaters of county cricket, um, the kinds of kinds of sub-worlds, if you like, that don't really get covered that much um, in the press, certainly certainly around here in, in, the, in the UK. But I interviewed... I say in the interview, I had a chat with David Ripley, right, who is retiring from the role of head coach at North Ants after 10 years there. He was a player for many years before that as well. He's been associated with the club for decades. He was keeper batsman there, head coach for 10 years. He's staying with the club, but more in a scouting role. Um, He's retired at the end of this season. Um, And we had a chat just about the game and how it's changed in the 10 years since he's been in charge and his savoured moments you know of course the two famous t20 wins which which happened under his his tutelage the first one in 2013 is truly an extraordinary story um tim wigmore the yeah, excellent writer journalist and he covered it superbly actually that when they they interpreted the money ball theory to their own game um having finished bottom of the 18 in the previous t20 tournament uh, Ripley and Stephen Peters, who was a non-playing club captain at the time, not playing in the T20, they they conceived this this new philosophy and new approach, and it paid off with an amazing win in the final with David Willey, a homegrown player, making runs and wickets, taking wickets, and then they won it three years later against Notts, having had a squad beset by injuries and bad luck and this, that, and the other. So they won it twice in three or four years, and extraordinary for a club of that size. And he said it transformed the club because you know the money that you make from that along with the prestige, the credibility and the fans that come in on the back of it. Um, and it's the, it's a story of survival and it's a story, as he put it himself, of staying relevant. How do you stay relevant as a non-test match club? A club that is 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 never going to be particularly well-heeled financially. Um, but they have very good contacts around Northamptonshire in the neighbouring counties, Bedfordshire, Buckinghamshire, Huntingdonshire and so on. He'll be overseeing that. Um, and again, when I asked him for his his most precious, treasured moment, he said seeing three players play for England. He said the T20 stuff will live on, but seeing three players play for England, Willie, Ollie Stone uh, and Ben Duck, it all came through. He brought them through as a, as a coach at the time. Um, and that, of course, is the the fundamental reason for for a club like North Hans existence and continuing relevance as he puts it to keep providing for the for the broader game and thematically on the same sort of feel final game they played Chelmsford last week and he said and he told me this little story he said he was walking around the the perimeter of the ground and he saw a bloke in a pork pie hat um he said oh I know him and he edged towards him and he saw his Graham Gooch and Gooch comes up to him and he said oh hello David and Ripley said to me, first of all, the fact that he remembered who I was was enough. Great of the game, legend of the game. And then Gooch said, I just shook his hand and he said, I just want to thank you for everything you've done for our game. And Ripley said to me, I was, he was choked, really choked up by that. That a man of that kind of standing, that legendary status is still living and breathing the county game. And recognising that it, there is a kind of togetherness, a brotherhood element of it. And... And he just finished off the interview by saying we have to protect and cherish this as long as possible. 
It was a really nice interview. Gucci, I guess, is one of the few people who can legitimately say that. He's got the standing high enough where yeah, you can yeah, say, yeah, I can actually thank you. You sound like Mother Earth. It's also, <laughs> pork pie hat. <laughs> a latent specials fan. Who'd have thought? Oh, as, I was re- as I was proving that yesterday, I was like, who's he, who's he spotted? Who's, who's <laughs> going to turn up? <laughs> well, we promised you last week that we'd uh, offer some solutions to to the conundrum that is the county schedule. Big promise. Um, big promise, yeah. <laughs> We're full um, of empty promises. <laughs> um, thanks again to everyone who emailed in to get in touch. Um, some excellent suggestions. I'll run through a couple of them now. Uh, Andrew Holland suggested not having any other county cricket running alongside the 100, splitting the one-day cup between the beginning and the end of the season, playing some of it in between county championship rounds. Uh, some of the test summer is always going to be alongside the 100, but not much of it. And then he suggested that you have uh, three rounds of the county championship alongside the second half of the marquee test series. Uh, Peter Davies said, the debate needs to clearly delineate the two objectives of the county schedule, that is appeasing members and attracting new viewers. And we need to ensure that schedule has the best solution for each. He suggested effectively binning the one-day cup, arguing that there is not a natural live audience for it. Um, Very good suggestions. One thing I thought was quite interesting in Andrew's one was having one-day cup games in between championship rounds. That's something that we've kind of moved away from recently. But I know it was a complete mess a few years ago where you had a uh, championship game blast and it was all over the place and it was very hard to attract players for just the blast, I guess. It was very hard for players going from the championship to the blast and back to the championship. Um, but I guess that is one possibility to make have, to, to increase the stature of the one-day cup in particular. Over to you, Joe. <laughs> Oh, it's a possibility. It, it, I wouldn't do that personally. I think in a in a kind of messy schedule, one thing that actually worked well was the one day cup being played at the same time as the hundreds. Uh, I think it it actually kind of preserved it. It gave county fans something to watch, something to go and watch live, something to really get behind. Uh, if there's no cricket at the same, t- there's no county cricket at the same time as the hundred. I think that's a problem. I think that's a really big problem, and so I think we're actually creating more problems by, by rather than solving them. And I spoke to quite a few people at Glamorgan over the course of the one day cup and after winning it. And it really, it really meant something. And I think even though that window was obviously dominated by the hundred, I think it would be much more dominated if it was played every now and again in the midst of championship games where that's not what anyone's focusing on. At least the one day cup was the prime focus for the people involved in it. And that's why I'd keep it as it is for, for the time being. Don't know about the rest of it, but that is interesting. That is interesting. Um, Will McPherson, I heard similar things, by the way, to what he was saying about Glamorgan. I heard similar things speaking to the counties doing our monthly rounds up and so on. I heard similar things about the value of having the one-day cup in the height of summer for the membership and that the players were more engaged with it than maybe we may have assumed because, rather shamefully, it was given next to no coverage. Um, and next to no marketing spend and pr- promotion. That, I would say, needs to be addressed. But I, I'm with Joe on that. I think it's the right place for it to be overall in that in that summer carve-up. And But stick the final at a weekend. Having it on a, what yeah. was it, a, th- a Thursday, Thursday yeah. that, was, that was, yeah. And also, I think it was only 24 hours after Durham had qualified for the final. So actually, supporters wanted to go to the final wouldn't have been able to sort that yeah, out. So that, that garbage. Was, that's, a, that's ridiculous. I think they have said that they will... I think that will be fixed. I think it's a Saturday final next year. All right, okay. Yeah. Um, Will McPherson, the Evening Standard, put together a kind of a proposed schedule. And one of the more interesting things in it was that alongside the 100, he would have a new first-class competition that he's calling the Bob Willis Trophy. Um, I guess that's interesting because one of the problems at the moment is that there you go quite a long period of time without any red ball cricket being played. And there are players, there are county players who, who 
pretty much only play red ball cricket if you're Hassan Azad, for example. Um, you, you go a long period of time without playing any red ball cricket. And I guess this is a pretty good solution. And also, um, England's test players who don't play in the 100 have an opportunity to play first-class cricket what, what around would, a, a big series. Yeah, what I would say, though, um, and I, I read Will's thing, and I thought it was, you know, loads of really good stuff in there. And fair play to him for giving it a go as well. That doesn't sit that comfortably with me for a few reasons. One being counties themselves will say, look, these are the summer holidays. This is the height of summer. We need cricket on that we can make up a little bit of money from. So that's why the 50 over cup slips in there. If they put county, if they put county championship stuff on, then they lose money. And if they put a sub county championship on, as in the Bob Willis trophy, they're going to lose ever more. Because with the best will in the world, you're going to have a fraction of, of people going to watch that, especially when all the other stuff is going on. Test match cricket will be played at the same time. One ODI cricket will be played at the same time. And of course, the 100 will be played at the same time. So I can, I can understand where Will's coming from on that, but that doesn't sit that comfortably with me. I can also understand why he would want to move the ODI, the one-day cup to the early part of the summer. I get that, but... But again, as we've said, I think it's its rightful place is probably in the guts of that of, of the, the summer holidays, really. The the big, big thing for me, having looked at it, and I've flipped and flopped a bit on this, but uh, there needs to be a return to two-divisional cricket. And I think that's going to be happening from 2023. I think the mood is now suggesting that. I think what's happened in September has clarified a few people's feelings on that. It's felt odd. There's been a lot of dead cricket. Uh, reversion to two-divisions... 10 in the top division, um, 8 in the feeder division, 2 coming up. So you have a 25% chance every time of getting promoted uh, and playing less of it at the start of the summer. I don't have a problem with kind of front-loading up to a point, but it was far too skewed this time around. It should be something like a 6 and a 4 spread across 6 across 2 months and then four across the next five weeks or seven and three at a push. But well, And squeeze the blast slightly earlier. And and yeah, yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. Um, so the more I think about it, the more I think they didn't do a disastrous job this year. All things considered with the virus as well. I think we need to revert to two divisions with the county championship. But I like the idea of playing a kind of finale block of, of county cricket where we're all focused on that. The snag, of course, is that, as I say, it, it, it didn't feel like real intense cricket in the last few weeks, but it would be if we reverted back to two divisions. Moving on to some other listener questions. Um, a reminder, you can send us your questions and thoughts that are longer than 240 characters to podcast at wisdom.com. Thanks again for all the messages we've had sent in. They, they've been really excellent and thanks for the, the time that's evidently been put into them. Um, Sam Barnett asks, why don't more English players play winter first-class cricket abroad? Whenever a young touring player is in the UK, commentators often go on about how they benefit from a stint in county cricket, yet we don't really expect the reverse. By playing first-class cricket abroad, players can play on a greater variety of pitches, which would obviously be helpful given the amount of first-class cricket played here on green tops. I know some players are busy with T20 League, but that's a minority. I guess a lot play grade cricket when they're very young, but that's still not quite the same. Perhaps the ECB could fund something. I remember the Lions playing in the Randy Trophy one year. Yeah, I think the, the England Lions, uh, when Kevin Peterson was part of the England A-team, they played in the Duleep Trophy, which is a Indian first-class competition. Um, but yeah, it's a good question. Some players do. I can remember, we're talk- Joe, we were talking about it before we started recording. I can remember Scott Borthwick playing in New Zealand, Ben Folkes playing in Sri Lanka. 
Baron Chopra many. was the one that sprung to mind for me. Who played? It must be about ten years ago. Played in Sri Lanka uh, in their domestic setup and Wesley, a, Wesley and Borthwick as well in Sri Lanka. Really? Together, yeah. Okay. Uh, and Varon Chopper did really well out there, got a couple of hundreds and then went on to have the best few seasons of his career after that. So obviously seemed to seemed to work for him. It's a really interesting question and I don't really know the answer to it. I think, I don't know if the options are necessarily available in some places. I don't know if, is it, can an English player just go along and play in the Ranji Trophy? I'm not even sure if that's, that's permitted. They wouldn't get a game. <laughs> they, wouldn't get, they wouldn't get a game. That might be the other problem. Um, um, yeah, sorry Joe. Devon Conway is a good example. You know, one of the best players in the world peculiar route to get to where he is played club cricket here there and everywhere he's played New Zealand domestic cricket he's played obviously South African domestic cricket where he where he grew up he's played club cricket in England managed to to establish himself in New Zealand domestic cricket and then took it on from there but his his game and his story and he says it himself it's his uh kind of itinerant story has infused his own knowledge of himself and of course helped develop a more well-rounded cricket game so there's a hell of a lot to be made for it for sure um, but a lot of it has to flow from the individual I think and how many of those opportunities would be financially worthwhile as well I remember there was a, a lad at, uh, at Surrey Aaron Haranath who who played a couple of summers a couple of winters rather in Cape Town for a club out there and he said you know we did it for the experience but you know you're not making any money and you're often, I don't know if it was actually the case with Aaron, to be fair, but a lot, a lot of times you are losing money by doing it. But you are obviously experiencing something that you wouldn't otherwise have. Um, yeah, no doubt you become a better cricketer for these experiences. No doubt. I guess that there's, there's less of an overseas culture in other first-class competitions as well. Remember when Mason Crane went to Australia, he didn't go there to play for New South Wales. It just He ended up doing so well in grey cricket that he got selected off the back of that. It's not the same culture. I think he was the first... Overseas player for New South Wales in like 30 odd years since like Imran Khan or something like that. But, it, but it's a good question in the sense that, as Phil says, it's down to the individual. If someone really wanted to go and play domestic cricket in another country, is that Crawley did cricket, it, Joe? Grade cricket? I don't. I Gr- don't think it was first class. Not cricket, first though. class. Yeah. yeah, just just grade level. Yeah. The both and played for Queensland, and weirdly, Jack Simmons, Lancashire skipper, flat Jack, used to bowl right arm round darts. He capped in Tasmania for years, but but there's very few kind of English cricketers who have played regularly in Sheffield Shield cricket. Uh, and w- I remember when I was younger, always thinking they all they all play over in our <laughs> yeah. stuff. Why can't we get a few over there? Yeah. And then of course, speak to an Australian and they say, "No, do me a favour. Why would we have one of your lot over here and help help you lot?" You know, the idea of kind of ECB involvement is quite interesting as well. That that would be a good way to set it up. My my. My instinct as the ECB like to keep everything so centralised. They would rather just take their own players to those countries and play them in, in uh, on tours yeah. as opposed to sending them out as an individual. But, you know, um, yeah, it's an interesting one. Mm. Um, Stephen Connor asks, I've just finished listening to the BBC podcast Sports Strangest Crimes covering the Alan Stanford story. It's been good covering things in a lot of depth with great interviews. It made me wonder what cricket story would benefit from the full last dance treatment, i.e. a full 10-part Netflix documentary. I don't even I don't even like basketball, but happily sat through all of that. I really enjoyed the film The Edge, but could easily have watched more. I even found Cricket Fever, the Netflix show on the Mumbai Indians, quite interesting. Obviously very sanitised, but I think unintentionally revealed a lot about the players and the owners. 
Personally, I'd love to see something about English cricket from the low of 1999 to the high of 2005, although there's been plenty about 2005 already, or something similar covering 2015 to 2019 in England white ball cricket. Um, what, what would you guys want to see? It's a really good question, this. I've been thinking about it since, actually. Um, the, the England one he mentions from 99, I think that would be quite interesting as a, the, the history of the England white ball team from 1999 to winning it in 2019. You kind of a nice 20-year span. Um, obviously, a lot of it would be uh, farcical and ballsing it up at World Cups, but that's kind of entertaining itself. And then you've obviously built to the, the crescendo of the 2019 win. Um, but, you know, these these documentaries are always built around personalities in the way that The Last Dance is, you know, it's, it's Jordan's show with Scotty Pippen as the kind of, as his, as his sidekick. Uh, so I did, I wondered if something along the lines of following uh, Lara and Tendulka, obviously their kind of careers were interlinked as the two great modern batters, um, but also using those characters to tell kind of wider story about cricket in their country at the time, which was both I like going that. through really interesting periods. Um, how, that, how, one, how one country goes tra- stratospheric and the other one struggles for yeah. for passion and relevance. Exactly. Um, anyway, good, but anyway, copyright that. You can't, I don't want anyone <laughs> stealing that. That's, that's mine. Um, <laughs> top of my head, uh, the, the Botham story, which is right for a revisit, I think, because, you know, he became a rather fusty commentator for the last few years and, you know, all of that. But we forget that he's still one of the all-time greats. And I think the Botham story from 81 to 92, so from obviously, you know, what happened in 81 to nicking off for naught against Pakistan in the final of the 92 World Cup. And the Botham story and what, what it told you about English cricket in that period, I think that would be quite fun. I think that would be quite an interesting arc to it. Um Along, uh, along, uh, along similar lines as well. I know Sky did a Kevin Peterson thing a few years ago, but it was sort of Kevin Peterson, my story, speaking to Nasser Hussain, wasn't it? I think uh, Kevin Peterson taken from a further step back, speaking to people who maybe didn't like him quite so much and doing that, that whole story. I thought, I thought there was quite a lot of that, to be fair, in that one, though. There was more than I thought. I still thought it would. It was, it was a bit cosy. It was a bit cosy. There, a bit cosy. There were a few people to line up to, to you know, tell the truth. <laughs> Um, one other which was a big missed opportunity for English cricket at the time and I know for a fact that I think there were four different big media giants who were knocking on their door to cover their build up to the 2019 World Cup you know you're talking Netflix you're talking Amazon etc etc that story the two year build up similar to what they did with Australia's team the all or nothing the new documentary style that would have been brilliant. Um, I know that there were people that were asking and I know that a couple of the senior England players slapped the idea down. Um, but that would have been great. Bet you, bet you can't guess who of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. Imagine the episode on the Hale stuff just before the, just yeah, before the World Cup indeed, started. Indeed. Yeah. That might not have made the cut. Yeah, that's, that's the problem with these documentaries, isn't it? Um, another one as well, which was done brilliantly several years ago, uh, the out of the ashes, the Afghanistan story about their emergence that could definitely do with a kind of uh, an, an up to date version, obviously with the latest kind of horrendous chapter that we've got to now, a kind of a proper history of Afghanistan cricket with their superstars who have gone on to play in, in leagues around the world would be, you know, I mean it's a bit niche. This is very much for a cricket audience, um, but I think that would be. I mean, it's the, it's the great for me. It's the great story of the last twenty years of, of cricket, really, and deserves probably a bit more attention, particularly now. 
Very good suggestions. Thanks for that question again. This has been the Wizard Cricket Weekly podcast in association with Last Who. Last Who gives fans the opportunity to book live video chats with an incredible roster of sports stars. Last Who is the new must-have app for any sports fan. Cheers, Phil. Cheers, Joe. We'll be back next week for a big bumper preview for the T20 World Cup. Cheers. Podcast Network.